Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Heavenly Father, we are just increasingly encouraged just by your goodness. Thank you, you're the God that created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them and I suspect everything that's beyond them. And uh, you're, you're just so creative. And Lord, I thank you that you give us the, that same gift, even though in the minimal portion, Lord, to create. And uh, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would just breathe, even creatively, Lord, on your word today. Lord, that it would bring about new birth. Father, that it would bring about a change in perspective, that that change in perspective would be realized in action. And there'd be a change in our lives, Lord. Otherwise, what is the purpose of us coming together? You might as well have just saved us and took us home immediately. But not only that, you have a purpose for us here. You're working on us, but you want to work through us. So help us to come that much closer to your purpose for our lives, which is really genuinely the only thing that's going to bring us lasting fulfillment. Speak to us today, we pray, Father, by your spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask. And for his sake, amen. Amen. <clears throat> Welcome this morning. If you're visiting, my name's Robert. I'm one of the three pastors here at Calvary Chapel, South London, and it's nice to see you. Um, we are in a process of going for a study through the book of Acts, verse by verse, line upon line. And <clears throat> we've been doing kind of like a, a mini-series since we hit and arrived at chapter 13, and kind of like the overall, I suppose, kind of message or theme is the first international overseas mission, and this is part four. And today we're going we're gonna to not conclude, but we're going to probably, yeah, I doubt we're going to conclude it. We're going to look at Excellent Elders, part two. Remember we started at last week. I apologize, it didn't get up on the, on the internet. Um, hopefully we'll get that message last week's up and this week. Did any of you guys even listen to the messages online? Anyway, we're going to be looking at... <clears throat> oh, amen. Praise God. I didn't think I was going to get any response. I thought I'd just move swiftly on. We're going to be looking again only at verse 1. Really in brief, we're going to actually be going somewhere else this morning that relates to this issue of elders. So if you'd just like to turn to Acts 13, um, we've been probably about 10... 10 months in the book of Acts, and we've still got quite a ways to go yet, but we're going to take some time, as I mentioned, or as I have been mentioning, we're going to take some time in chapter 13, because it's a really important chapter. So, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and it names them, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. <clears throat> now, just to repeat what was mentioned last week, it may not seem like it, but we are talking about outreach. We are talking about outreach. Or the things that are vital 
to any good church, enabling it to do outreach. A church needs to get to a, a level soundness and health before it can really begin to reach out and help others. Now, what were some of the contributing factors to making this church in Antioch the good and the great church that it was so that it could actually go on to do missions, do outreach, and in a substantial fashion? What are some of those things? Well, we saw last week that this was a church that had, as I just mentioned in verse 1, prophets and teachers, including Barnabas and Saul, the dynamic duo, right? And we looked at the fact that this was also a, a cosmopolitan church in a metropolitan area. That means it identified with the people it was trying to reach. Then last week, remembering, if you can, the pictures of the temple, we saw that because the Lord Jesus had brought down that middle wall of partition, remember that ran around the temple, because Jesus had brought down that middle wall of partition, spiritually on the cross, and then physically in 70 AD when Nero came in and tore down not just the middle wall of partition, but the whole temple, we saw that Hebrew women could now come closer. We saw that Gentiles could now come closer and get connected in a way that never happened before. Even to the point where in this church at Antioch, we see Gentile men, Gentile men, on the leadership team. And black Gentile men at that. Working together on the same team as Jewish leaders. Excellent elders. We did part one, as I said last week. Now this week we will continue looking at the issue of elders, specifically at that which qualifies. That which qualifies. Last week we looked at some statistics that outlined the fact that in general, men are outnumbered by women in the church two to one. We saw that Church is good for men, remember? Contributing to changing them dramatically. And I gave myself as an example of that. How God the potter has been working on this lump of clay for the past 20 years, and I know that I'm a better man for it. Because church is good for men. And then also we looked at the fact that men are good for the church. See, if you affect the children, we, we, we felt that the Lord say this so strongly to us when we went to Jamaica back in August. If you affect the children, it takes a generation before they can begin to affect society. You affect the ladies, thank God for the ladies, because they've been carrying it for so long, to a greater degree, two to one in church. Well, if you affect the ladies, that's wonderful. Because they begin to have an immediate effect on other ladies. 
but they have a, a direct effect on the children and then sometimes they even have an effect on the men, right? But if you can affect and get a hold of the men, then they have the greatest effect and influence on everybody. Immediately. You get, them, you get the, the, the man in the family or even out of the family. Imagine you get a man who's, who's out there and he's wayward and he's relinquished the responsibilities of raising his children and he's out there. If he gets saved and God begins to change him and he comes back, how many of you know that that's going to be a transformed household? And we need that multiple times over. I was really kind of tempted to go in another direction this morning because I felt so strongly that the Lord has been speaking to me personally. And that's why I never went there because I think it's for me personally. You know what I'm saying? Just speaking to the issue of being a man and being responsible and challenging other men to do likewise. Hard, like strongly. It's funny. Uh, I did that little rap for you at the beginning. I don't really do that no more. And for the past couple of weeks, I've just been kind of feeling like I took that gift and I just put it down to one side because there's other things that are more important in my life right now, like pastoring. And um, I know I'm going to come to, my, to the end of my season of teaching, specifically on a Sunday. Um, so that's going to free up some of my time in the week. And I'm really just praying about the Lord helping me to use that gift I mean we do myself and Pastor Ephraim you know we work in schools right Urban Mission and we use that gift in schools teaching young people how to write positively but I've been really challenged because music is so powerful and it speaks so powerfully and um, I, yesterday I sat down and this stuff was really heavy on my heart I just finished reading Joshua and at the end of Joshua um, Joshua goes back to the elders and he speaks to them and he, and he tells them about their responsibilities. He's about to die. And the Lord's you know, shown us that you know, we, we can't wait until we're about to roll over in the grave at like 60. Pastor Robert, you know, what's going to happen to the church? Oh yeah, maybe we need to raise someone up. And I'm saying, Pastor Patrick, I, I probably won't be here, right, in Jamaica. Pastor Patrick, Pastor Ephraim, are they going to wait until they're walking with a, 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 you know, a stick before they start to raise. No, we've already started that process, right? And that's what Joshua had been doing, but it came back to me again yesterday, how important it is for the next generation to be raised up. Next generation of rappers. Me and Pastor E was just talking about listening to Christian music now, and we were a bit saddened. You know what I mean? Now, I'm not, you know, I think very often it comes across like we're hating. I'm not hating, but I'm just saying... I find it, I listen and I don't hear the substance. You know what I'm saying? You do, but not as much as I would desire. Now, that's me, that's my personal opinion. You know what I mean? But not only wanting to see that develop, but wanting to see leaders developed. And you feel like you're a joker. Don't, don't worry, you're in good company because we all feel like that. But God will use you anyway. And so Joshua speaks to this nation, this, this group of elders, and he's about to check out. They're about to take over. And then I finish Joshua in my devotions, and I begin to read in Luke. And as I crack Luke, oh, my gosh. Zechariah, 
and his wife Elizabeth are barren, but they're going to have a son, and his name's John the Baptist. And he, through his preaching, is going to turn the heart of the children to the fathers and the heart of the fathers back to the children. And so there's me saying I wasn't really going to talk about it. I kind of talked about it in a nutshell, you know what I'm saying? But that's what's really heavy on my heart. And yesterday I sat down in about 20 minutes. For the first time in about three, four years, I wrote a whole verse and a hook in like a really short space of time. It just, the Lord helped me to do that. And I thought, you know what? I've got to use this gift. And, oh, and those of you involved in, 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 in music, particularly rap, you know what I'm saying? I pray that the Lord will really use you to speak to this generation. And those of you that do other forms of art, like poetry, like verbs, you know what I'm saying? Like, in, between now and January, what we're going to try and do is something that we're not very good at doing. We talk about urban mission, and we've done this for years and years and years since its inception. We talked about it, and no one really knows what Urban Mission is about, apart from those who are directly involved. Someone came along to something that we'd done last week, and they were like, whoa, is this what you lot do? And it's a shame that it's the, the whole church isn't familiar with that. So what we're going to do is, next year, we're going to invite anyone and everyone who does any kind of arts, and I was going to say arts-based ministry, not any kind of arts. You might not even do Christian arts. But you're here and you're a believer. We're just going to try and come together and talk about, you know what I'm saying, what we feel the Lord has, has been, you know what I'm saying, doing with Urban Mission. We just completed a project with, the, with Bebo and with the Home Office. And it, just, and it went exceptionally well. The Lord is just, again, very gracious. And um, so we're waiting, based on the evaluations, to see what's going to happen with that. But whatever comes of that or doesn't come of that, what we want to do is we, wanna, we want us to come together and say, Lord, you know, how can you really maximize our gifts and our talents, you know what I mean, in a really beneficial way? And again, particularly on my heart, is to speak to the mandem, speak to men in my generation who have flopped and dropped the ball hard, yet the Lord is a, is a, is a mighty redeemer, and he can change that and change them and change their circumstances. So affect the men, affect the men, and big things are going to happen. So, we saw that last week that this group were men. They were not female elders. They were male elders, and they were men, plural. It wasn't just one man. It was a group of men, actually five, as we noticed, who worked as a plurality. They worked as a team and led the church in Antioch. Now, these elders are ex they're excellent elders, they're an excellent example of church leadership on so many levels. Now, Paul further adds to our understanding later on in his epistles. That's 1 Timothy and in Titus chapter 1. Evidently, Paul was here, wasn't he, in Antioch, involved in one of the very first New Testament churches. That, meant he, that, that means that he gained great experience. And then, by the Spirit in 1 Timothy um, chapter 3, but particularly first in, in Titus chapter 1, he gives a clear outline of the qualifications for these elders. He's there for at least a year, if not longer, looking at how it works, listening and got the Lord speaking to him about the leadership and how important and vital it is to a, to a local church. 
So, he then writes in 1 Timothy 3, something that I'd like for us to have a look at this afternoon. If you'd like to turn there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as you're turning, we will be looking at that which qualifies those of us who are already elders, then that which would qualify those who desire to be elders. Those of you men who are here who sense a call to pastoral ministry, you may not be willing. At this point, you may not even desire it. But something says God has got his hand on your life with regard to that in terms of the future. Well, 1 Timothy 3, starting at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now Paul, as I said earlier, is the author of this letter. He writes to Timothy his spiritual son in the faith, who has gone back to Ephesus, which is where this church is. And it's a church that was originally established um, by Paul, as we will see in a, in a few months' time. But Ephesus was suffering from a, from a groundswell of false doctrine because of false teachers. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 to 7, says, as I urged you, now this Paul right into Timothy who's there on the ground, right? As I urged you when I was, in, when I was going to Macedonia, he said, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, verse 6, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. See, Paul's concerned about what's going on in the church outside the church and as it influences the church in Ephesus. And Paul continues in chapter 1, verse 15, talking about the grace of God in light of his own sinfulness. He talks about the fact that I'm the chief of sinners, but God has been gracious to me, enabling me to be what I'm saying, Timothy, these other teachers need to be, and he'll go on to talk about what Timothy himself needs to be. In verse 18 to 20, Paul gives personal instructions to Timothy. Then in chapter 2, Paul begins to give instructions about 
about the church. Men and women specifically. Which then brings us to chapter 3 and his instructions regarding the qualifications for elders and also deacons. Which We're not going to talk about deacons today. Elders. So, 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. Apparently, it had been communicated during this time that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that it was a noble task. And, he, and he's saying, yeah, that's, that's a word. It's, what you've been hearing is true. And Paul makes two points at the outset. But before we consider those, let's clear up the meaning of this word, overseer. Not sure which translation of the Bible you have, but I'm sure I'm going to hit one of them. Overseer. This has a few other synonymous, more commonly known words. One of them is the word that we use quite often, or I have been using quite often, which is elder. Synonymous. Also, this is a strange one, particularly if you're from a Church of England background. Bishop. Synonymous with those other two words, elder and overseer. In the Church of England, a bishop is quote-unquote higher than an elder or an overseer. And in the Church of England, he controls like a diocese. He's over multiple individuals. Now, it's not completely, totally out of context because the word does mean an overseer, right? But from a biblical point of view, whenever you see the word bishop, it's not talking about someone who wears like a purple robe and like one of them funny hats and presides over the diocese of Suffolk. No, that's not what, that's not what it means. It can mean that, but it more, it more so and most often is synonymous with just an overseer, just an elder in a local church. Another word is one that we use very often, which most people are familiar with, is pastor. Now, <clears throat> I, think, I think the King James uses the word bishop. Um, but this word pastor, it just means shepherd. Again, it's an overseer, someone who takes um, responsibility. And these all describe the same office and are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. And the meaning of all of these words is simply superintendent. Now, this is not to be confused with the word deacon, which is a completely different office. Again, we'll, we'll deal with that hopefully another time, possibly when at some point we go through either the book of Timothy or when we, in the near future, ordain and establish elders and deacons, which is a part of the rolling out of our process of membership or covenant community. Okay, so... The first thing that Paul says, remember I said he's, he's going to say two things. The first thing that Paul says is, it is valid. That is, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. To aspire means to set your heart on or to long for. It's actually the word lust, which isn't positive or negative, the word lust. It's just context dependent. So wherever you, wherever you find that word, and that which it's associated with will determine whether it's positive or negative. Obviously, in this context, it's a good lust. It's a good desire. Paul says that it is a valid aim or a wish. Secondly, he says <clears throat> the person desires a, a noble task. 
to desire the position of an elder is a good aspiration. The position is a noble one. I heard, who was it? I think it was John MacArthur say, as a preacher, as a pastor, as an overseer, as an elder, why would I stoop to become a king? Why would I stoop to become president or prime minister? It's a noble task. Yet, much more is required of an overseer than mere willingness. We will see that there are 15 requirements, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. They must be blameless. Now, evidently, that doesn't mean sinless, because <laughs> that means there'd be none of us that would be able to do that job. But blameless, it means above reproach, his life cannot be marked with criticism, but must be untarnished and above suspicion. It means to have nothing in one's conduct on which anyone could ground an accusation, a charge, or an allegation. Blameless, above reproach. And this first point sums up everything else that we're going to see on this list. It's like a summary statement. And the whole list that comes after this, if you like, is summed up in being above reproach. Being blameless. We're going to unpack what that means, basically. And the list can also be divided into four categories. And these four categories describe four areas of life in which this man is to be blameless. The first one is moral character. The second one is home life. The third one is maturity. And the fourth is reputation. Blameless, 15 specific qualities that fall under these four categories. Moral character, home life, maturity, and reputation. Incidentally, these all speak in the present tense. Yet, some of them do reach back into the past to encompass the knowledge of that man's life known to the people among whom he ministers. These speak of present purity, but it doesn't mean that he could have had in the past impurity that is all of a sudden erased in the present. No, he must be known in the present as a man who is and has been a godly man. So while it is a present trait list, it implies a past purity. Because if his past was impure, his present reputation would be in question. Now you might say, boy, isn't that an awful, an awfully high standard? Yep. Because God expects his leaders to behave like him. And while you're in the process of getting out your imaginary tape measure to compare us leaders against God's standard, this benchmark is not just for leaders. It's for every individual that names the name of Christ. 
See, it's the leader's job to set the example for others to follow. See, the question is, is God your father? As you put your tape measure away. Is God your father? Good. Well, this verse speaks directly to you as much as it speaks to me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. And you therefore must be perfect as who? As your heavenly father is perfect. So that means if he's your dad, this relates to you. Whether you're a leader or in the pew. And the context of Matthew 5, if you get a chance to read it later, issues similar to those on our list are mentioned, like anger, like lust. Remember, if you're right, Hannah Fenn, you cut it off. Divorce, the issues of retaliation and vengeance. Matthew 5, and we also see these to some degree in our list here. So, verse 2 to verse 7 We'll now comment on what blamelessness means. The first one. Under moral character, this man has to be the husband of one wife. Now, without taking too much time on this, the husband of one wife, that means faithful to the spouse that you are married to. Faithful to the spouse that you are married to at present. It's not saying those who have been divorced or widowed can never become an elder. That would be inconsistent with the rest of the New Testament. No, it's not saying that. You might be divorced. Does that disqualify you? Well, you might be widowed. Would that disqualify you? No, that's not the question. You might have been divorced, but in it, were you blameless? That's the question. Are you blameless, present tense? You might have been in a relationship, and you were the one to blame in that relationship. And it ended up in divorce. Well, it doesn't say that you definitely can't at some point in the future. But for the moment, that situation needs to be looked at. And each situation needs to be judged on its own merits. The issue is, who was at fault? And then the next question is, on that basis, can you be criticized? The husband of one wife. What this term means is he's a one-woman man. The woman that you're presently with has your complete commitment. You're not in an adulterous situation, physically or emotionally. You've got to state that nowadays. Because we know that it's not right physically, but hey... We have people who will tell us, well, you know what, we never actually did anything. We didn't actually, well, okay, well, we did, but we never went there. Jesus says, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you ain't even been caught in close proximity. But you've already committed the act in your heart. Therefore, if 
you're up close and personal with some woman that's not your wife. Although you may not have committed the physical act, you're not beyond reproach. You're not above reproach. You're not blameless in that sense. Now, if you are there, I'd encourage you quickly to bring that to someone's attention that knows you well, that's godly, so they can help you to get out of that. So that you don't end up where we're going to see in a minute. Now, isn't it interesting that this is the first one on the list? This is probably the primary problem for men in ministry. Old and New Testament. Past, present, and hey, you can can guarantee it's going to cause problems in the future. We've seen a number of men recently who have not been one woman men. Disqualifying themselves, making their lives and ministry shipwrecked. What a descriptive term, actually. If you're quick on the draw, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, sorry I don't have a slide for it. You hear Paul make reference to this, doesn't he? 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, says Paul, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now, Paul is not talking about salvation here. He's not saying you're in a race, and if you don't win this race, uh uh-oh, you came second, like two hundredths of a second behind the, the winner. You, you lost your salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about being able to run the race, the course that God has set before you, God's purpose for your life. That's what he's talking about. And he's talking about running, not against other Christians. Oh, I wonder if, I can, I wonder if I'm a better preacher than that guy. I wonder if I can sell more CDs in terms of my music. That's not what he's talking about. The, 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 the competitors that you're running against are those things in your life that will prevent you from winning. Like bad moral character. You've got an eye for the ladies. Listen, like it's the first thing that comes up that will mash up your life and it will mash up your ministry. Uh, it's like, I'd be like, Lord, I know that I'm just as susceptible as any brother out there. In or out of leadership. But I'll be like, Lord, if I, if I was unfaithful to my wife, my life is over. I mean, li- literally, my life is over. I'm, I'm at Bible school. I don't know anything other than posting letters. That's what I did for 17 years before I become a pastor. And, well going into schools and, and doing the type of work that we've been doing in schools, which the Lord has really blessed and enabled us to do. But if I, couldn't, if, I couldn't, if I couldn't teach the Bible, my life is over. I mean, if you know me, you know I'm a passionate brother, right? Anything I'm into, I'm passionate about it. <laughs> I'm not going to start to name stuff, because if I start naming them, I'll start getting passionate about them. <laughs> But, 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 but God's word is my greatest passion. If I couldn't do this, my life is over. 
my life is over. If I did something that, that was a blight on my character morally, that says, Robert, you've got to sit down because what you're saying does not tally up with what you're... Look at what, you do, look at what you've done. My life is over. I don't know what I would do. Words can't even communicate. So now, I want to run my race, innit? I want I want to run it, and I want to finish it, and I want to finish it well. I want to. So those things in my life that will try to encroach upon me, and prevent me, and trip me. Those things that I need to speak to Pastor Patrick and Pastor Ephraim about. They're my accountability partners. I need to bring that stuff to them so they will pray for me. So that I don't end up where Paul's going to mention in a minute. Because my life would be over. And you know, you may not even be in ministry. But you know that if you did this, your life would also be over. Because you would mash up your family. How are you going to look your kids in the eye? Especially if they're big like mine. It's one thing when they're little and they don't understand, right? But when they're big people, my daughter is going to be 17 in a few months' time. How am I going to look her in the eye and what am I going to, am I going to say? You see, that's where David found himself when he committed adultery, right? With Bathsheba. And after the event, after he murdered the woman's husband, see, when you start getting into them areas, everything in your life just begins to get warped. So you begin to do things that you think, that you, you yourself will sit there and I think, how did I do that? See, that's the deceitful nature of sin. And Tutu's David is in a place where his own son rapes his half-sister. And her full brother, Absalom, comes and says, what? You done what? And he, and he wants to tear Amnon up. But he doesn't. He goes to his dad. He says, he says, he says Dad, you know what my half-brother done to my sister? He raped her. This can't, this can't work. What does David say? What, what do you say when you done something similar? What are you going to say? The brother's completely emasculated, like, and he doesn't do anything to the point where his son begins to fight against him and the kingdom just, he's got to run off like a, your life, listen, you get involved in them things, it will mash up your life. God says to David, I forgive you. Remember? And God will forgive. That's why it's not a salvation issue. Unless you keep on doing it and you don't stop doing it, that's a different thing. But God says to David, you know what, I forgive you, but now the sword will never leave your house. And we see that. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every Now check it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. If you're an athlete, you know that there's certain food you can't eat. If you're an athlete, you know you have to go to your bed at night time. 
You can't be up playing PlayStation till five in the morning. If you're an athlete and you want to win, you want to compete properly, there are rules that you got to, whether people put them on you or you yourself get to the point, you know what, there's certain things I just can't do. If I want to be that, if I want to win my race, and it's the same for all of us. You just got to look in your own life and say, hmm, yeah, I can see the contenders in my life that want to prevent me from getting to, from being who, from winning my race, from being the person that God has called me to be. Self-control in all things is going to come up again in a minute. He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. I mean, all they're going to get out of it is a gold medal. It's like, it's like yippee. And that's a lot to shout about in the world, right? Oh my gosh. Lights, camera, action, big special evening for those who win gold medals, right? It's a big thing in the world. And they knock themselves out. Don't touch this, can't eat that, can't go there, can't do this. So that they can win their race, right? Now how much? It doesn't even bear comparing. They do it to receive a perishable reef that someday is ever going to... I mean, back in, the, in Athens, obviously where the, the Olympics and all that started, all they got was some... Some leafy thing that went round their head. <laughs> He says, look, so, so he says, look, they do it for that, but we do it for an imperishable reef. We do it for an imperishable crown. We do it for something that is worth so much more. Or is it worth that much more? Is it, is it worth that much more to you? Well, if it is, you will run your race. If it ain't, you won't. You will do all of the things that we're going to talk about that you ought not to do because you don't care. But you will on that day. We've been encouraged to think about that this week at Bible school. Right now it's like, oh, it's great being a Christian, isn't it? And you can just about crack a smile. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And whether that's because you know what I mean? You ain't really trying to run your race or because you've got contenders knocking you and you're trying to run your race but they're knocking you and jostling you and they're trying to get in, the, in front of you and they don't play fair, they're elbowing you and trying to trip you over them things in your life, right? It says in Romans that we've got to lay aside those weights, those things that will ensnare us and hinder us from running, right? You may not understand it now, but you're going to understand it. You're going to be like, oh, Lord Jesus, oh, my gosh, oh. on that day. But God wants us to understand that now, not wait till then and be sitting in a heap, bawling, because we never really took it that seriously, because it really wasn't worth that much to us. But it means a lot to Paul. And he says, verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beat in the air like shadow boxing, like who you fighting over there, fam? He says, but I discipline my body. 
discipline and discipline disciple come from the same root word there's there's something about being a christian that ain't just wake up in the morning and oh i suppose i've got to live holy and yeah i suppose I, i really ought to pray and maybe i should find some time to read my bible it's not every, how many of you know that you wake up in the morning and you don't always feel like doing them things? I've got both hands up. But you see, that's the, the difference between a disciple and just a Christian, quote unquote, is that a disciple does them things that he doesn't want to do, but no, he has to do. You know what I'm saying? You see, the parallel between the athlete and the Christian. And Paul talks in another place in Timothy about the farmer. And he talks about the soldier. Soldiers don't feel like... You think, you think, you think, you think our soldiers who are over there in Iraq or getting ready to go over to Afghanistan feel like it? But they ain't got no time to be like, sure, man, I don't even really want to be here, you know. And I don't even know why I come out here in the first place. And you better fix up a mind sharp or you might get your head blown off. A lie? So as an, as an athlete, as a Christian athlete, you have to be disciplined. That means you don't do them things that you feel like you want to do, but you can't do because it's going to prevent, it's gonna, you're going to put on weight. You, them boxes, you see they stand on them scales. If you're like a, a, like a half a pound overweight, that's it. You ain't fighting and that two million pound purse has just gone down the drain. You got, and whatever you have, if you've got two pounds to lose, sometimes, sometimes the boxers are there and they weigh and they're a pound over. They've got 20 minutes, half an hour to go and lose that pound. You think it's a joke? And you better go and lose that. Because not only are you going to lose your purse, the manager, all the other people who've been helping you, like, didn't we tell you that you're supposed to do this? Didn't we tell you like five weeks ago that you had to be down to this way? down to this weight so you better don't lose it we don't want to hear nothing lose the weight fam you got you got you got 20 minutes we'll be here we'll, we'll be here waiting for you he says i discipline my body and you do what you have to do see but 21st century christianity don't know nothing about this and you know paul is writing to timothy in prison that's where Paul is writing this letter to Timothy who's in Ephesus a lie Marky he says I do not run aimlessly I do not box as one beat in the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control see there's no excuse there's forgiveness but there's no excuse for I couldn't help myself there's forgiveness but there really ain't no excuse for it and, we, and I tell you, we need to help each other. That's what, look, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to provoke you this afternoon. I'm up in your face, isn't it? Trying to provoke you to say, you know what? You may not feel like it, but you have to. We have to get these things in our lives under control. Again, we're going to come to this issue of control in a moment. Lest, listen to what Paul says, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
or I myself should be a castaway or shipwrecked. And Lord Jesus, Lord, please, I, 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 I couldn't deal with the shipwreck, Lord. I couldn't deal with the shipwreck. So, knowing that, I'm a that would mash up my life. Let me just stay away from that then, isn't it? That makes sense, isn't it? I know me. I take it you know you. So if you're cool to go there and get shipwrecked, that's all right, isn't it? If you're cool to have your life mash up, like, how are you going to start again? You can't start again. It's mash up. Think about a shipwreck. Who's going to try and glue that together? It's wrecked. You can't even find the bow and the, the you, can't, you can't find the pieces of the ship. It's wrecked. Now I say this to those of you that, that ain't there in the hope that you won't get there. And you know, forgive me. I'm being harsh. I'm being hard. I know those, there are those who have been there. And you're looking, you look back in hindsight. You know they say, everyone's Einstein with hindsight. And you look back, and you're looking back at that shipwreck. And maybe you've spent the past six months, the past six years, trying to glue the ship back together again. Be like Robinson Crusoe on the island with bits of the ship trying to stick it back together again. Thank God that even in that, there's redemption. Even, even though you're looking back at a train wreck, what that ought to do now is encourage you now. I mean, you're in a place where you can say to others, Yo! No, no, look, you know what? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even going to just say, don't come this way. Don't come in this. I'm going to prevent you from coming in this direction. Because I've been there and trust me, just trust me. You don't need to go there. Just take it from me. It, forevermore, let me sit down and explain to you exactly what this means. Now, I've had that. I've sat down with a brother who committed adultery, who a year before was telling me, Rob, man, you don't understand. She loves me like my wife don't love me. She tells me things that my wife doesn't tell me. She does things that I really enjoy and I love. Rob, you don't understand. You don't, the Lord understands, but you don't understand. That's what he was saying to me a year before the train wreck. And then he sat down with tears running down his face at the impact that it has now had. His stupidity and his blindness, his short-sightedness. That's what it is, isn't it? Blind and short-sighted. You can't see beyond where. And the devil don't come. When he comes to tempt you with her or when he comes to tempt you with him, he don't tell you about the train wreck and he don't tell you about the casualties. And they don't tell you about how much it's going to cost to repair the damage. He doesn't do that, does he? So if that's you, please stand there as like on guard to help, to help others not go there. That can be a blessing. Even David himself in Psalm 51, he said it, didn't he? After confessing his sin, absolutely busted now. He's like, Lord... It's just, my sin is ever before me. Like my friend, it's like a scar that will never go away. 
It can heal, but then you know there's going to be those times when you bump it and it, and, and, and it brings back the memories. It's healed, but there's a scar. But then David says, Lord, he says, if I was, he says, I know that I could bring the offerings and I could quote unquote say the prayer. But he says, you want truth on the inner part. And then after in his brokenness and his repentance, he says, Lord, after you've dealt with me, after I've come to that place of genuine humility where my sin is completely recognized, and it's not even the fact that I've sinned, it's the fact that I've sinned against you. Like Joseph, remember Joseph was on the other side, he didn't commit the act. He says, how can I do this great evil and sin against, not, not Potiphar's wife, or not even Potiphar. How can I do this great evil? And he would have been sinning against Potiphar. But he says, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? And David then says, when he's in that place, God's forgiven him and God is in the process of restoring him now. He says, Lord, now maybe I can teach transgressors your way. And David ain't going to be able to sit up on the throne with his crown cocked to one side like, all right then, fellas, what's the... What's going on today? Call him, call him a counsellor. And what are we up to today, fellas? No, David ain't going to be that man anymore. Never again is he going to be that man. He forfeited it. But now in humility, he can sit down and he can say, maybe just on a corner, you know what I mean, as the guys are passing by, oh, look, who's that? Oh, it's, it's just King David, isn't it? It never used to be like that. That's not how they used to refer to him. But now, I mean, not only have pe people on road ain't got no respect for him, his family ain't got no respect for him, his kids ain't got no respect for him. Absalom has sex with one of his concubines on the rooftops to embarrass him, his dad. train wreck may God help us may God help you if you're that person that you will be able to teach transgressors his way in, in humility now I've been there fam I lost my credibility I lost the great name that God had given me sit down let me tell, let me tell you how it happened and help somebody teach another transgressor in his way so that they don't make the same mistake amen Okay, <clears throat> the next qualification, to be sober-minded. To be sober-minded, it means to be serious. Not all the time. <laughs> it doesn't mean without a sense of humor. It's one who enjoys a joke, shares a joke, but then when it's time appropriate, they're circumspect. They're moderate. Person's well, they're well balanced. Can have a laugh and a joke, but hey, there's times, okay, all right, now we've got to be serious. They're watchful. They don't get carried away with the fun and the games. You know I'm saying, you know, it's like, it's, Christmas is coming, right? My son's going to get some new games for his Wii. Or, shh, don't tell him. 
for his arm. Um, no, he's already got a wee arm. His arm. I won't even tell you because it will slip out. You know how these things go. But when he gets this thing for Christmas and he's playing it, you know what? What kind of dad would I be if my son said, Dad, come in and play this with me? And I'm like, you know what? I, I don't do games. <laughs> I'm too serious and sober for that. I have to keep my mind on spiritual things. Set my mind on things above, not on things beneath, son. It's not just madness. So heavenly-minded, you have no earthly good right. I'll be in there playing with my son. And he'll be beating me at every single game. It's all good. I ain't, I'm not proud like that. I want him to do better than me. So hey, amen. But you know what? I can't sit there playing that game all day. I bet I have something other to do with my time. You get me? It's like I cannot sit there and watch soap after soap after soap. I can't, do, I can't afford to do that. Waterloo Road comes on, and I'll give it five minutes. But like, hey, hmm, okay. Oh, so that's what's happened since the last time it was on. Ooh. But then I better go and find something constructive to do with my time. You feeling me? And that's for me as an elder. But how many of you know that goes for you too? Remember, it's our job as overseers, as leaders, to set the example. What? Only we're supposed to live like that. Hello? No. It's for all of us to live like that. But it's for us to set the example. Sober-minded. It means to be watchful. It means to be vigilant. So even while I'm there playing that game, to some degree, my mind may possibly be on something else that's more serious. But I will enjoy that. And I will engage with my son and we'll have a good time. The next quality is closely related to this one. <clears throat> and we've talked a little bit about it already. Self-control. Which is one of the byproducts of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 22 to 24 says, But the fruit or the byproduct of the Spirit, in comparison to the works of the flesh, if you know that part of the Bible, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, that's reference again back to being a disciplined one. You've got to crucify them, them things. You have to murder them. Otherwise, they're going to creep up and murder you. In Titus chapter 1, we have a similar list to that in 1 Timothy 3. And verse 8 mentions not being quick-tempered. Which would be the contrast of being self-controlled. Right? Then Paul uses the same word in Titus chapter 2, verse 2. Regarding older men. Then younger women are to be taught this by the older women. See, there's a place for teaching with regards to women. Then there is a further reminder for the young men in verse 6 of Titus chapter 2. 
I just thought, you know, it would be good to read it. Check it. But as for you, Paul speaking to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Obviously, you're not expecting to hear nothing other than that from Paul. He says, older men are to be sober-minded. We just looked at that. Dignified, self-controlled. Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers, gossipers, or slaves to much wine. Interesting. I'm going to come on to that. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Verse 5, to be what? Self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. That's to young women, young married women. And I know this is, in this culture, psh, you know what I mean? We're under pressure. Where wives have got to go to work, quote unquote. I remember it was about 15 years ago, yeah, because Renee's 17 now. Renee was about two. And we swore that. One, it was really impractical because I was working nights and Helen was working day shift. So literally, we were like ships passing in the night. Because we got a little one and our family wasn't able, my family were in Jamaica and Helen's dad wasn't able to and Helen's mom, you know, is an alcoholic. So we never had the, the, the privilege of being able to just kind of have ready-made like caretakers for our children, childminders. So we just said, you know what, this is madness. And furthermore, we felt quite convinced that it would be better for Helen to be at home with the kids, looking after them, rather than us putting them in a childminder. Now, I say this hesitantly, you know what I mean? Because, as I said, this is the culture that we're living in. And I know that things are difficult. And we're forced. You know, one of the reasons why mortgages are so high is because 50 years ago, only the man went to work. Women never went to work in the way they go to work now. And so... A man would earn a certain amount of money and he could afford to pay a certain amount for a house. But after a process of time through the 60s, through the 70s, I mean, you know, you had that whole movement with regard to women and women being empowered and why should we have to do this and men are out there working, why can't we? Things change dramatically now. Most households, if they're together, <laughs> that's another thing, if they're together, both people are working. Now, one man who's working can afford so much. But when you've got two people bringing in salaries, now you can afford so much more. That's why things are partly the way they are today. And we just said, you know what? And I'm not trying to put this on you. you know what I'm, I'm just giving you my testimony. We said, boy, you know, it would be really good, Helen, if you could stay home, you know what I'm saying, and, and, and just be mum. And um, it was very difficult. Um, for about five, six years, we never went on no holidays. We had a little car. It, 
It, was, it wasn't even a one litre. It was a, a 9.5, I think. A little fiesta, no headrests. It was like just basic. And we had that car and, you know what I mean? Thank the Lord, since then things have changed. You know what I mean? But back then it was rough. But we made a decision that, you know, we said, Lord, this is what we want. And um, thank the Lord, you know, Helen stayed home with the kids. And that's, that's time now you can't get back again. You know what I mean? And you, know, you might be here and you may not have had that option. You know what I mean? That doesn't mean that, you know what I'm saying, I'm any better than you. It's just a choice that we made. You know what I'm saying? Um, but you may have a young family now and it's a challenge to you, isn't it? It's a challenge to say, Psh, what's, what's going to be more beneficial? What's going to be, you know, what is the Lord saying to you? As, as we did. What is the Lord saying to us? You know what I mean? And um, what can I say? It's here in the text, isn't it? That mums should stay home and look after their children. And look after the household. Now I know some of you are heavy because you go to work and your house is still become span. <laughs> you get me? But um, that's hard work. You know what I mean? That's hard work. So anyway... Man, I'm going for some mad tangents today. <clears throat> this individual, verse 6, likewise, talking about self-control, pure, working at home, this is to the young women, and submissive to their own husbands. You know? And I can't even lie, it's not even like Helen didn't want to do that. She, that's, that's what she wanted to do anyway. So it made it quite easy. It was an easy decision. But you've got to work out your own business in your own household, right? Right. Verse 6, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled, which is the issue. Back to the issue, self-control. Someone who properly regulates his appetites and passions. Someone who properly regulates his appetites and passions. Going back to the issue of elders who are men in the church. Self-controlled. Don't let your passions get the better of you or your appetites. The fourth the fourth aspect of character, moral character. They need to be respectable. The King James Version says, of good behavior. Of good behavior. Albert Barnes says, the elder needs to be of good behavior, modest, mannerly. The most correct rendering, according to the modern use of language, would be that he should be a gentleman. Now, modern language, I think it's about 100 years ago or something. A gentleman, in a real sense of the word, a gentle man. He should not be slovenly in his appearance or rough and boorish in his manners. He should not do violence to the usages of refined intercourse, nor be unfit to appear respectably in the most refined circles of society and not be guilty of inattention to personal neatness. Now, I thought that was interesting. Now, it doesn't mean that you've got to wear Versace and Armani. You know what I mean? But hey, you can have on a, you know what I'm saying, a pair of 20 pound jeans. You get me? And have, a, have, a, have on a Primark shirt and look decent. A lie? But the issue is look decent. I mean, if you can afford Armani, hey, good for you. You know what I mean? But whatever it is, 
Attention, attention to personal neatness. I think our, our appearance communicates a lot, doesn't it? It does communicate. And you know, it's funny because some will take that and they will say, well, you know what, jeans and trainers are not acceptable. But that's a cultural thing, so ban that. You know what I mean? And I mean, all you've got to do is just point them to Pastor Patrick, right? Yeah, you know what I mean? Because he's got his swagger to give up. <laughs> I'm still learning, I'm still learning from him. Now, <clears throat> now, now, this is not so much to do with a Burberry and a monocle, but a gentleman by true standards. You know that monocles are coming back. I saw it in the metro. What's my man's name again? Chris Eubank. Bringing back the monocle. I don't, I don't, somehow I don't see it catching on. But. but this person, not clownish, rude, or crude, but orderly, decent, and grave, and correct in the whole of his appearance, carriage, and conduct. Respectable. All right, I've got to move, right? Some things don't change much. The fifth one. He's got to be, he, the elder, has got to be hospitable. The King James Version says, given to hospitality. Given to hospitality. Now, this isn't just opening your house for your friends and your family. That's not hard. Everybody does that. Don't they? Maybe, well, maybe they don't. <laughs> Literally, what it means is a lover, don't let no one come to your yard. What's that all about? <laughs> You want to go to everybody else's house, though. Sit down and chill. And, Any biscuits? <laughs> you know what I mean? You want a cup of tea? Yeah. Any biscuits? But how about, how about opening up your house? Swiftly moving on. I'm, a, I'm really getting myself in trouble today, isn't it? A love, literally, it means a lover of strangers. One who is ready to receive into his house and relieve the outsider or the unfamiliar person. I have to make sure, now I don't think we got this down to a T at all, because I'm a man sometimes, even though I, you know, we, we do open my house, my wife, she's, she's better than me, um, she opened the house and sometimes, it, it gets on my nerves, I can't even lie, <laughs> if I'll be honest, see, this is one of the areas where the Lord is still working on me, and um, I have to make sure that when I get out of my bed sometimes in the morning, that I'm careful to practice the fourth quality that we just looked at, and dress respectably and appropriately. Because sometimes I come out my, at, at the bedroom, <laughs> it's like I never knew who, know who I'm going to meet on the landing. <laughs> and I mean, queuing up for the toilet or the, to use the shower, even up to this morning. And you might say, well, you know what? That's not really for me, because I'm not, I'm not really called to be a leader. That's for you, the leaders, to do that. And furthermore, I don't think you're opening your house enough. You get me? And then when you open your house, you're selective. <laughs> here, here's some talk. Last week, I was hearing this, and it comes around in waves. This stuff about, you know what? That church, I wasn't really feeling that church because, boy, you know what I mean? You've got these cliques and certain people just, you know what I mean? They've got this little group and you can't really get involved in it. You know what? That's, that, you know what that is? That's immaturity. You know what I mean? Because it's like you'll get a group that meet and link up. Just by virtue of being brethren, it's, it's called phileo in Greek. It's brotherly love. It's where the word Philadelphia comes from. You know what I mean? I will link with you because we both like Arsenal football team. You get me? And we're linking up to kick ball on Thursday. That's why we're linking up. You know what I mean? 
And the, and the problem is, sometimes you get individuals who will do four or five different, they'll play football, they, they might teach a Bible study, you get me? They go cycling and they got all this stuff in their life. No, what? And they're part of a group. Don't get offended because they're doing that and you're not invited. Do you, do you cycle? Do you, do you play football? Do you play basketball? With the girls then? Don't stand up and like, oh, you know what? They're doing their thing, meaning they're not letting me join in. It doesn't mean that. It means you need to bore true. Go and get involved. You need to say, where you lot going? Now they might, I don't know, maybe it's true to a degree. Maybe they might turn around and say, well, boy, you know what? Um, we, we, we. <laughs> Human nature, maybe that does happen. And if it's happened to you, I'm sorry, forgive, forgive me and forgive them. You know what I mean? But, come on. The Bible says, he who has a friend must first show himself friendly. You know what I mean? So, everyone's doing stuff that, and you're not invited. Well, you set up something. I remember back in the day, Pastor Pete, am I lying? Back in the day, we all used to love to kick football. But, Pastor, but particularly Pastor Patrick, yeah? He'd be like, he'd be like, Rob, it's coming like, if I don't book the pitch... If I don't get the balls, if I don't get the, fill the bottles with water, if I don't do all these things, no football don't get kicked. You know what I mean? And everyone's like, yeah, 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 oh, football, yeah, Amy, football's on. I, I, I can't lie. It's one, it's, today is one of those days, right? Me and Pastor P, back in them, they sat down and thought, you know what? Bundis. We're sick and tired. We're fed up. At the fact that if we don't do it, no one else don't want to do it. And then when we don't do it, man's just like, how comes there ain't no football? What's going on? Oh, I think some man's in his feeling me on that one still. But I'm just saying, you know what? Rather than us murmuring and complaining and moaning and causing division and schism, let's just say, hey, okay, what can I do? What is it? I can and invite. Look, I'm gonna invite those that don't invite me. Hey, you know what I mean? We can get over these things so simply, yet we make them into big things that cause chasms, mash up relationships. It's a madness. And so, thank the Lord, we got some other brothers that will lead the football now, so we don't have to get involved in it, Pastor P. Amen to that. Praise God. Now, <clears throat> gosh. Hospitality, that's where we were, right? Now, you might say, well, I'm definitely not called to be a leader because I'm not that way inclined, that is to open up my house. Sometimes people have got good reason for that. You don't know what people's past is. You don't know if someone had their door kicked off and come in, someone come in their house and affect them and abuse them. You don't know. You know what I mean? So, but if that is the case, we need to work through that. You know what I mean? So we can get to the point where we can all be hospitable. You know what I mean? We can all be hospitable. And we have to use wisdom, don't we? Um, I mean, I know of a story about someone who let someone into their house and a person started stealing from them brought somebody else in the house 
to rob the house when the people who were in the house weren't in the house. And this was supposed to be a Christian. Now, obviously, that's a madness. You need to call the police. Ain't nothing about, oh, well, you know, we've got to forgive them. You need to call the police. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so you just don't let any and anyone in the house. And I think we got a situation in here, what, a year or two ago, where, you know what I'm saying, a family showed someone amazing love. I mean, a lot of the agape love of God. This person was living out on the street. Let them in their house. Was there for what six months at least, if not longer, and this person, there were people in here that got ripped off by that person. And I mean, we learn wisdom from that. We learn wisdom from that. But at the same time, we still have to be open and hospitable. See, we all must be hospitable with the elders setting the example for others to follow. And you know, we've got to do that because you never know. Thank you. Yeah, I run out of time. Long time, innit? Story of my life, bruv. Story of my life. We must be hospitable because you never know who the Lord may send your way, right? Hebrews 13 verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, not just your family and those you know and you love, but to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. All right, let's go real quick. Number six. Evidently, we ain't finishing this today. Number six, um, able to teach. Now, you may look at this quality and say, but that, that isn't a moral quality, surely. Well, it isn't, but it is. Being able to teach is somewhat of a gift. We see that in Ephesians 4 with the fivefold ministry, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Gifted men who are gifts themselves to the body. But then that is just the beginning. Being gifted to teach is one thing. Living by what you teach is another. And that's the point here. The elder has to be someone who models the teaching in his own life. See, you can be the most articulate, witty, clever, charismatic, clear of a communicator. But you're just another hypocrite. If you say and don't do. You heard it said before, right? I can't hear what you're saying because your life speaks too loudly. Actions speak louder than words. Teach with your lifestyle as well as your lyrics. May God help us all. Okay, now verse 3, number 7. I'm just going to finish these few because it's kind of like the, the whole moral character thing. We're never going to get to the rest. Um, <clears throat> number sorry, number seven, verse three, not a drunkard. I like the way the ESV puts it. Not a drunkard. The King James Version, the authorized King James, King, James, King James Version says, not given to wine. Hmm. Not given to wine, which isn't as strong as that which the original communicates. And could possibly at a glance give the impression that you're not to drink at all. The New King James Version is more helpful. It says not given to much wine. Now, for you as a Christian, it's okay for you to have a drink. That's what I would teach. There are some that would say you shouldn't drink. And there are good reasons for that, given our culture and the fact that drink is worse than illegal drugs, because it's legal. 
and drink-related issues kill probably more people in our country, probably ne just next to something like, probably like cancer or heart disease. You know, it's, I ain't got the time to talk about the things I'd like to talk about with regard to alcohol. You know what I mean? But I've got to teach what the Bible teaches, and the Bible don't teach that you can't drink. Now, I personally don't drink. But that's my personal choice and for my own personal testimony. You know what I mean? I'm not putting it on you. You can have a drink. But, like you're saying here, not given to much wine. Now, how much is much? Well, I'm going to leave that to you and the Holy Spirit to figure out. If you, if you get caught driving and they lock you up, you've had obviously too much to drink. <laughs> right? And I hope that obviously that is something that we would never do. Right? Um, so, uh, number eight. Not violent, but gentle. We're going to finish on this one. Not violent, but gentle. You would have thought that surely this one would go without saying. You talk, you're not, we're talking about we're talking about if we're talking about Christians. I mean, this should go without saying for Christians, let alone those who are in the ministry. But it needs to be said because violence is a common trait today. We <clears throat> now we're evidently not going to be able to, like I said, finish this today. I think what we'll do is we'll come back to this in the new year. But to end, I think the King James says with regard to this individual, it says not a striker. Physical violence. I mean violence. You know, violence doesn't necessarily mean to need to be physical. It can be verbal. And again, it's speaking to men who are probably the culprits. They're more culpable, you know what I'm saying, when it comes to getting angry. And then that leading to some violent kind of outburst. So, as I said, we'll have to come back to this list. And we will do an excellent elders part three. And so, qualifications for those who would be God's example to his people for them, for you to follow is vital. For those who desire to be in leadership, if you're interested, these are the standards. Standards that are to be met as well as to be kept. Because the elders are those who lead by example. Present, present tense. The pattern of living that God expects for all his holy people. So leaders who exemplify models that need to be typified in God's people. The bar is high, right? It's because it represents the most high. Amen. Let's pray. Otherwise, we'll never get out of here today. Father, I pray that you would teach me, first of all, Lord, to, to have self-control, Lord, because... I often lack it, Lord, particularly when I'm teaching. 
feel like my points are so important that I've got to get them across. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as we reflect on the height of the bar, the fact that you desire for one, your people, to be above reproach so that unbelievers won't see what we do and blaspheme on account of that. But then also, and vitally important, your desire is that those who lead your people, those who are the example setters, Lord, would do the same. If not, be more impeccable. Yet your desire is that all of us be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Lord, we need your help. There's 15 things on this list. we only done half and it just seems like an impossible task. Yet, by your grace, as Paul said in First Timothy, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. Yet God is helping me to be faithful. And so, Lord, help us, I pray. Help us to run our race, Lord. Help us to run the, the course that's set before us. Help us to fulfill the purpose that you've called us to fulfill. And run hard to the finish line that we might win. That you might be pleased with us to give us that crown on that day. And Lord, for those who have fallen in their race, Lord. Those who have tripped up or been tripped up for various different reasons, Lord. And they look at their life and it, and it seems... unrepairable, irreparable. Lord, I pray that you would pour in oil and wine, Lord, just like the, the man who got beaten up on the, on the road where the good Samaritan came along and helped him. There's help for that person, Lord. And I thank you that you are the one. You are the ultimate good Samaritan. I pray that, Lord, you'd work in their lives and do that restorative work, Lord. So that they'll be able to look back and say, you know what? Hey, my life was like that, but that was the past. Look at what the Lord has done. So, Lord, we're at your mercy. And it's a good place to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.